My prayer for this morning, really, is that God would speak to each one of us about something specific that he has for each one of us, that he wants to prompt in our minds and in our hearts. And I realised as I was thinking that and praying that this week, that that's, we say that quite a lot, but I don't know whether we all... What do we mean by that? What does it mean for God to speak to us and to prompt us? And I just thought I'd start by just saying a few examples of how he might do that. He speaks to all of us differently. We're all very different, and he communicates with us as individuals. So... It might be that you feel something physical. When I was talking to Pete about this in the week, he had a quote from uh, Wesley, John Wesley, who said that his heart is strangely warmed. And I think that's a lovely phrase, that that might be how God speaks to you. You feel something, you might feel heat, your heart might thump, you might feel something in the pit of your stomach. It might also be mental, it might be something that you hear or read that just suddenly clicks and makes sense, and you have that sense that God might be just putting his finger on that thing for you. Or it might be something kind of in your spirit, you just sort of know, you can't really explain, but you just know that you know that God's saying something. Or it might be repetition that you find across your week, that again and again the same theme's coming through, and that's something that God wants to, to talk about. So... I want to talk about something this morning that I first came across. There was a throwaway comment by a new wine speaker this summer that just stuck in my head and I've been thinking about ever since. But before I actually tell you what the the title is, I want to tell you a story. And this story is about a woman in her 50s who uh, trained to run her first marathon. She put in all the hard work, she did all those late night runs... And then on the day, she achieved it. She got over the finish line. She took about just over six hours, but she made it. And she was so excited that she got there and she'd achieved what she'd set out to do, that she took her finish line photo and the time and she put it on social media and was really excited. A little while later, she spotted the women that she'd trained with and she noticed that they'd all finished together as a group and they'd all finished faster than her. And she was so ashamed and embarrassed that they'd finished faster than her, that she removed the photo from social media. She took down the time before before they could see it. And all the joy and the sense of achievement that she'd had went completely out the window because she was comparing to what other people had and what other people had done and felt embarrassed. So the title today is Comparison is the Thief of Joy. We're going to look a little bit at Galatians 5. Pete read a bit of that at the start of the service. So that that reading, Pete read the first verse of of this passage, but it comes after Paul's been talking about these two ways that you can live. And what happens if you choose to live the way the world says? And he gives this whole list of things that come out of living in the kind of chaos that our culture is. And then he says, well, what happens if you live God's way? And that's where the fruit of the Spirit comes in, that I'm sure many of us are familiar with. And Paul says, if you choose to live the Spirit's way, then you find... Love, joy, peace, patience grow in your life. And then it comes to this passage. So it says, Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives, each one of us, is an original. That can only be from the message translation, can't it? (laughs) Um, So, we're going to have a little bit, a very brief look at who it is we might compare ourselves to and what's behind it. And then most importantly, we're going to move on to hopefully quite a long time thinking about... Quite a long time, that's going to set alarm bells off in your head, isn't it? Two o'clock I'm aiming to finish, I hope that's okay. Um, 
But yeah, then we're going to spend the majority of the time that we have looking at actually what do we do about it. It's all very well saying, well, comparison's the thief of joy, but how do we stop it? So I brought someone along to help me. Here he is. Now, he's a little bit clearer on my lap than he is up there, but what you can't see is that he's got something in his hand. He carries it everywhere with him. And it's normally invisible, but I've managed to secure a deal that he's going to be visible for just a few moments. It's a measuring stick. This chap carries a measuring stick with him everywhere. And as you can see, the measuring stick's got the ability to talk to him. He can say how he measures up with other people. He can check where he sits in the world, in the hierarchy, how he compares to this person and to that person. So whenever we see this little figure, I want you to remember that he's got that invisible measuring stick alongside him. Now, I'm sure if I was to give you five minutes, you could come up with all kinds of people that we might compare ourselves to. I've just pulled out a few. So if this chap represents me, or perhaps, dare I say, you, who might we compare ourselves to? Well, we compare ourselves to people that we know, whether that's family, friends, colleagues, people in church. Um, We compare ourselves to people that we know already. We also might compare ourselves to strangers, whether that's kind of people we know of but don't know directly, people that we've never met, people that um, we sit next to on a bus, people that we see in films, TV, strangers. We might compare ourselves to the old days. Sorry, you can't probably see these quite so well as I can. You compare yourselves to the old days, so what it was like back then, back when I had more energy, more time, back when I had a greater fire for God. And we compare ourselves and look back And we also, I think this is a massive one, particularly in the church, we compare ourselves to what we think we should be. The super-Christian, what what do they do? How can I compare myself to them? Maybe you do it as your role in the family. You know, what should a wife do, a husband do? What should a parent be like? What should a sibling be like, a child? And so on. And we have this idea of what we should be. We don't always compare ourselves to someone else, of course. We can compare other people against each other. Has anyone ever heard or said, why can't you be more like your sister? Or something like that, compared to a previous work environment or colleagues or boss. And of course, we could be in that position where other people are comparing us to someone else. What do we do with that? And what happens when me becomes us? Do we as a church compare ourselves to other churches and say, why why aren't we more like Woody's? Why aren't we more like them? Should we be more like them? Maybe it's family. You know, I wish our family looked like that. So, that's, I mean, that's just a few, I say. I'm sure you can think of lots of others, other ways that we compare ourselves to other people. So what is behind comparison? Well, firstly, I wanted to talk a little bit, very briefly, about what, it's, what I'm not talking about, if that makes sense. Um, just so that we get that out in the open first. Now, if, if, imagine you have a friend who is extremely generous. You look at that person and you see how generous they are in their actions, how they use their money, their time, and they're just fabulous with generosity. You've got two options. Either you can allow that generosity to inspire you to grow. You might look at someone and say, oh, they're so generous. I, w- I would love to learn how to be generous like that. You might hang out with them a bit more to see how they do it. And inspiration allows you to grow. In Corinthians, um, Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. 
So clearly he's expecting people to look at him and say, that's great about him, I want to do more of that. So that the act of recognising differences and recognising people's gifts is not in itself a bad thing if it allows and encourages growth. The problem comes when we set this standard. So you could look at your generous friend and say, ah, I see, generosity equals this. I've got to reach this bar, this level, and all I'm looking at when I compare is the gap. I'm here, they're up here, oh, there's a gap. It's not allowing growth, it's not encouraging, it's actually bringing death in your thinking because you're just focusing on the difference. I hope that makes sense. You're all looking still awake, good sign. So, mind the gap. Where does the gap come from? What, do, what might prompt us, what might lead us to comparison? Just again, there's probably lots that you can come up with, but I've just pulled out four just to have a very quick look at. So pride. Think of the disciples on the road who are arguing who, who's going to be the greatest. That's judging. That's looking at others and going, oh, how do I measure up? Am I superior? Am I inferior? And checking that you're better. What about the other way around? Looking at people and feeling insignificant, feeling insecure. Think about Gideon. When he's greeted by the angel of the Lord, he says, mighty warrior. He goes, uh, I don't think so. Don't you know I'm the least in my family? I'm the weakest, I'm the smallest. You can't possibly think I could do anything for God. And I love how in the um, body passage in 1 Corinthians, where um, Paul's saying, you know, a hand can't say to a foot, I don't need you. That's pride, isn't it? The hand saying, well, I'm really important and you're not, so I don't need you. But it also guards us against the other way around. It also says, well, you can't look at another piece and say, because I'm not like that piece of the body, I don't fit in the body. So it guards us against pride and insecurity. If we look at the, think back to the comparing ourselves to who we sh- think we should be, that can come from a place of guilt and shame. You know, we feel that we sh- don't measure up to how we think we ought to behave, how we think we ought to look, how we think we ought to use our time, and actually that builds in us guilt and shame. Oh, and this purple guy's got a present. And we can envy the things that people have, whether that's physical things, whether that's uh, more spiritual things. We can find it comes from a place of envy. So that's a very, very brief whistle-stop tour of a few ideas of the ways that we can fall into this trap of comparison. So how do we get out of it? And I've thought of three things that I really want to share about how we can avoid this trap of comparison. So firstly, I even touched on it this morning, it was brilliant. Not planned, and it's an example of God's Spirit working in the planning um, of a service. Know who you are. I think this is so key if we're going to avoid the trap of comparison. The more secure you are in knowing who you are, who God says you are, who you're called to be, who you're made to be, the less you'll need to compare to anyone else because you know who you are and that you are significant. So how do we know who we are? Well, reading the Word is obviously key. This is where... God's truth for all of time that will never change is written. So we could be here all day pulling out verses that tell us who we are. So I've just done a few. Um, Made in God's image, Genesis 1. John starts his gospel by saying, if you believe in Jesus, you have the right to be a child of God. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you're God's child. That's non-negotiable. You're free from condemnation. That deals with the guilt and the shame. You've been bought with a price. That deals with insecurity and insignificance. You know, Jesus paid that price for you. 
How more significant can he tell you that you are? We've been redeemed and forgiven. We're complete in Christ. We have everything that we need. That deals with envy. We're God's masterpiece, his handiwork. And we can approach him with confidence because of what Jesus has done. That's just a few of the verses I could have pulled out telling us who God says we are. So read the word. Get familiar with it. When you feel like you're falling into the trap of comparison, what word can you pull out that will, will, will come against that and say, well, actually, no, I don't need to compare because I am a child of God. I am free. I am uh, redeemed and forgiven. You can also let God affirm you directly. That's reading the Bible, which is, as I say, true for all the time, and it applies to all Christians, these promises and these declarations over who we are. Have you ever asked God who he says you are? Have you ever just asked a question and then waited to see if he'd say anything particular? You know, what do you say about me, God? How did you make me? What were you thinking when you made me? What gifts did you give me? I love that at um, Jesus' baptism, he hasn't started his ministry, and yet the Father says, this is my son, I am well pleased. How many of us have the mindset that we should have done at least something before God says he's pleased with us? But, you know, I even started the service. We turned up, we're here. We don't have to do anything and God says, I'm so pleased with you. Let God affirm you. Open your gifts. Now, how often do we spend all our time looking at someone else and saying, oh, I wish I could pray like them. I wish I could be generous like them. And they've got that gift. But have you noticed that behind you there's a pile of unopened gifts that you aren't even looking at? You're so busy looking at everyone else and what they can do and what they can't that you're not even noticing that God is pouring into your life gifts. The Bible tells us that to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To each one, not to the special ones, not to the few, not to the ones who are up the front, not to the ones who can play the piano, to everyone the gift is given. So what is your gift? Get familiar with it, know it. And Paul counsels Timothy, Timothy to not neglect his gift. So actually that, doesn't, that suggests that it's not just a case of going, okay, I've got, the, I've got the gift, I'll put it down there and leave it alone. Actually you need to fan it into flame, you need to practice, you need to get used to how it feels and how it works. And finally, as we become more confident in knowing who we are, we begin to recognise who everyone else is as well. As you see that you are a child of God, you get to notice that others are children of God as well. That's in your mindset. That's how you see. So you don't compare yourselves with one another because you're all on that equal footing. So that's knowing who you are, the first step to getting out of this comparison trap. Know who you are. Secondly, put away the measuring stick. Remember the little guy with his measuring stick? Put it away. You don't need it. Now the first three points here are very similar so I'll put them all on the screen at once encouraging one another being thankful for one another and celebrating successes are so key to getting rid of the comparison in your life so key I was thinking when I was preparing you know what what examples do I have where have I seen this at work in my life and I think the the tip of the spear if you like for me dealing with comparison has been through music and worship and the teams that I've been on um I think in some ways some, something like that is so easy to, to fall into that comparison. You know, there are loads of people that sing, well, oh, you know, is my voice better than theirs? Can I sing better? Can I hold the tune better than they can? What about my harmonies? You know, so easy to creep into that insecurity or that pride. 
But actually, the culture of celebrating successes and being thankful for one another is so important. And I've been really lucky and blessed to have been uh, part of teams led by amazing people, both here and when I've been uh, involved at Christchurch as well. So a lot of you all know Geraldine. She was brilliant at setting a culture that did not put a bar that you had to jump over. Didn't say, this is the, the level that you have to get to to play the piano in worship. This is the level that you have to be to be a worship leader. She was amazing at setting that kind of affirming culture that said, you know, what you bring is important. I remember countless worship leader meetings where we would sit and encourage one another and spot and point out what is great about, you know, Iron, what does he bring when he, when he leads worship that's different to the rest of us? Jane, Caroline, uh, Rich, John T., And me, you know, if we're confident in what we bring, we don't have to compare that we're not like others. We can start celebrating successes. And that's particularly important when someone is good at something that you either would like to be good at or have a gift in already. Because that is a real um, temptation to compare when you are looking at someone who's very similar to you or you aspire to be like. It's very easy to start comparing. But if you celebrate their successes and be thankful for them, That really helps. Another way we can put away the measuring stick is to avoid pursuing perfection. So perfection, again, like comparison, looking at the gap, perfection is all about measuring up. It says there is a standard. There is, this is, this is perfection. How do you measure up to that? Does that sound like it brings life? I don't think so. I came across this survey which really struck me. I think it was done by the Girl Guides. And they were asking uh, young, I think, I think they were all girls, but they were asking young people lots of questions about the pressures they felt. And all of, um, there were so many different uh, categories that I could have pulled out. But there was one that caught my eye, which was about, do you feel the pressure to be perfect? And so the survey, when they were looking at primary school age children, I think they had about 500 of them, they asked. 23% said they felt a pressure to be perfect. By the time they got up to secondary school and university age that had gone up to 61%. Now, I can see some people's eyes glazing over thinking, oh no, statistics, I don't get it, it doesn't mean anything. So I thought, okay, how can we make it a bit more meaningful? So I counted how many young people we've got in this church. You know, we've seen the flood of people that have gone out the back today. So I went down the list and I reckon we've got roughly 37 children and young people in Cairns, which is amazing in itself, isn't that a blessing? But if you were to look at those children and young people, that's a kind of a a number of people that we can keep in our minds. When they were in primary school, whether they are currently or whether they were, when they were that age, eight of them would have felt the pressure to be perfect. By the time they finish university, the 37 young people that we've got, 22 of them will feel the pressure to be perfect if it's the same as this survey. Now, I would hope that the church would prove very different results to that. We should be a people that are not putting a pressure on people to be perfect. But isn't it challenging to think 22 of the wonderful people that are out the back by the time they leave university could have a pressure to be perfect built into their lives. What do we do with that? How on earth do we combat that kind of trap? I suggest that instead of pursuing perfection, we get into our minds the idea of pursuing excellence. Perfection is, here's the standard, how are you measuring up? Excellence is, well, what have you got? What's the gifts that you've currently got? You know, in my example of worship leading, if Geraldine had said, 
well, no, actually, you need to prove to me that you can do this before I'll let you lead worship or play the piano, I probably still wouldn't be there. You know, the standard could be really high. But she was like, well, what can you currently do? Do that. Use that to serve God. Do the best with what you can. And over time, that will grow and change. You know, if I look back and think when I first started leading worship, I had far less skill than I have today. And if I look ahead, I can see, you know, look at others, I can see that there is so much more I can learn. But actually, what am I called to do? If I pursue excellence in the moment that I'm in, it means that I'm looking at what I've got, what I can currently offer in terms of skill, time, whatever, and giving it and doing my best. Celebrating progress. I started thinking, if you were about pursuing perfection and you had a child that was learning to walk, when they took a step and fell over, well, you'd be saying, well, that's not walking. What are you you doing? Get up. (laughs) Who on earth would do that? You know, we would all clap and cheer and celebrate the fact they took one step before they fell over. Why do we stop that? Why do we stop celebrating successes and progress? There's a bit I love in 2 Corinthians where it says that we all, as we contemplate God, as we spend time with him, we are being transformed. He is transforming us from glory to glory to become more like Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? And I love it because it doesn't say... It transforms you from rubbish to finally being perfect. It says from glory to glory. So actually where you are now in your journey, God is transforming you. Yes, you will change and grow and um, hopefully be more like Jesus day by day. But he's not looking at the gap. He's saying where you are, you're in your journey, you're with me. That's glorious. And so finally about putting away the measuring stick, how can we help others to put the measuring stick away? We've talked about you know, our young people. Actually, how do we help them not compare themselves to each other? How do you help your colleagues when they're talking and you've got, maybe you've got a colleague who always puts themselves down? How can you bring hope to them and actually help them put away the measuring stick and show them a better way? So we've talked about knowing who you are. We've talked about putting away the measuring stick. The final one, very quickly, is beware of triggers. They're everywhere. Culture tells you what you should be, how you should look, what you should eat, how fast you should run a marathon, who knows. TV, films, magazines, are some of these things, when you look at them, when you read them, do they leave you in a place where you're thinking, oh, I don't measure up? If so, what can you do about that? Is it about stopping reading something that you find particularly unhelpful? Is it just reading it with a different mindset so that you can catch the comparison before it takes root? Social media, I think, in our day and age, I think we'd all agree, is a big example of this. You know, there's a pastor in America, Stephen Furtick, who says um, the danger with things like social media and why it leads to so much insecurity is because we're comparing our backstage with someone else's highlight reel. And how often do you look at something on there and you think, oh, man, they've got it all together. I'm such a mess. Well... That's what they're presenting. So don't believe that and don't compare. People, I was going to change this to people, places and situations. Clearly I didn't. Um, But are there people, places or situations in your life that when you encounter them, you find that you're more tempted to compare? I mean, this is really tricky about what you do with that because it depends on who it is, where it is. can't probably stop going to work because it's a place that you compare. But how are you going to handle that? How can you bring change, whether it's to your, your own mind, whether it's to the culture that you're in? 
Are there people in your life that constantly compare you to someone else or constantly feel like you are trying to measure up? What do you do with that? Now, obviously, sometimes it might be appropriate to say, actually, if you, if you, you know, explain to them, actually, I'm looking at comparison, I really want to stop comparing myself and feeling like I never measure up. Will you help me by not talking in that way or not saying things like that? Maybe that's a way forward. Maybe that's, maybe that's not possible. But how can you avoid that sort of situation or those sorts of people that just feel like you're flinging yourself headlong into that trap? And then the hard question, are you a trigger for somebody? That takes them... Maybe you need to ask someone else whether they, you think, they think you're a trigger for someone. But do you catch yourself comparing, perhaps comparing your children to each other? or comparing colleagues at work, or comparing uh, family members or friends. So we're going to have um, quite a, hopefully quite a bit of time to respond, which is really important, I think. Um, and I wanted to talk, we're going to have communion as part of that response. So I wanted to just talk briefly about the new me, or the new you. So the, the little chat that we've been using to help us this morning, you can see, even on the slightly dim projector bulb, you can see that he's quite bobbly around the edges. He's not a perfect, smooth, presented character. And that's often what we feel like, isn't it? You know, we feel that we're a bit rough around the edges. We feel like we keep getting it wrong and, oh, there's a blob out there and that wasn't supposed to happen. And we should, I think we can slip into thinking that God sees us like that. He sees every bump and he sees everything that's imperfect. But actually, what this table celebrates is Jesus choosing to take off his perfection and take on our imperfection so that anyone who is in Jesus, anyone who believes in him, gets the perfect outline of the design that God wove into creation at the beginning. We get the perfect, spotless righteousness that Jesus had. Isn't that amazing? And of course, our reality, you can see that the colour inside that person still doesn't make it to the edge because the reality is we don't choose all the time to live in the, in the truth of who we are in Jesus. We don't choose to live as if we have got that perfect outline. We still make the wrong choices. We still get things wrong. But this is where it comes back to being transformed from glory to glory. As we become more and more like Jesus, that shape fills up with colour. And we know that one day, when we die or when Jesus returns, we're going to get a full complete, perfect outline that is us. So I think I'd like to invite you all to stand. We're just going to have a few minutes of quiet before we do anything else. Just to think back on the things that we've talked about. We've talked about who and how and why we compare. We've talked about how we can avoid the trap of comparison by knowing who we are, by putting away our measuring stick, and by being aware of our triggers. Has there been something that God has spoken to you particularly? There is paper and pen on the table if you feel like you need to make a note of that to remember it. But let me pray for us as we stand and respond. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. Thank you that you are a God who loves us. Thank you that you are a God who took the initiative and pay the price so that we can be made like you.
And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and be amongst us as we respond to what we've heard. That you would be prompting each one of our hearts and our minds with something that you are saying to us. 